are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Here's Nate. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 14, we are getting a glimpse into the leadership of King Saul, especially in those first few years of his leadership. They were oppressive years, years that the Philistines were dominating them, causing the uh, Israelites to scatter, to fear, to hide. And so Saul is really in a difficult season in leadership there in Israel. Now, in chapter 13, we were introduced for the first time to his son, Jonathan. Just a quick mention telling us that he was in charge for at least a season of 1,000 Israelite troops and that he defeated a Philistine garrison and at least caused a little bit of uproar amongst the Philistines, a little bit of movement and shifting of their troops as a result of the victory that Jonathan's leadership uh, provided. But here in chapter 14, we get a deeper glimpse into the character of this son of Saul, this man named Jonathan. And what we'll find is pure gold. This man was an incredible man with an incredible heart, which on its surface ought to be encouraging to every single believer just to understand and know that no matter where we came from, no matter what our heritage, no matter what our parents were like, there is hope for us that we can stand on our own two feet and be spirit-filled contributors to the body of Christ and to uh, this world. And that's certainly the case with Jonathan. His, his father, Saul, was not a uh, winner of a man, but Jonathan, just a wonderful man uh, who had become the best friend of David. Uh, but here, before any of that occurs, before J Jonathan even knows the name of David, it says in verse 1 that one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And so Jonathan here on this one particular day has a word to speak to his armor bearer. And, and the, the events that, that would then unfold in this chapter would provide a spark for the Israelite nation in these desperate times. His faith would let light the fuse for a nation and really wake them up in many ways. And so he says to his armor bearer, hey, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. He, he had a craving for battle. As a, as a son of the king, he had an armor bearer. So he says to his armor bearer, hey, why don't you and I go over there? And, uh, you know, obviously the implication is let's go there for a fight. Jonathan was absolutely a man of adventure, and that's what God is looking for. He's looking for adventurous spirits and souls who will take steps of faith, put God and his power, his strength on the line, 
And godly people will do this. Moses rose up for the Israelite slaves. David rose up for the Israelite army and defeating Goliath. Prophets would rise up continually for the Israelite nation when the religious establishment would not. Godly people will rise up for God's people. And that's what Jonathan is doing. His love for God gave him a love for God's people. And so seeing this oppression... He wants to attack the oppressors. Notice, though, that when he comes up with this idea, it says in verse 1, he did not tell his father. Saul really wasn't the kind of man that you tell that kind of news to. Uh, Saul would waffle. Saul would discourage him. Saul would question him with a critical kind of spirit. Saul would try to keep him from it. And My goal has always been to be the kind of man that can easily receive this kind of news. Be a can-tell kind of man, woman, husband, wife, father, mother, son, daughter, church. Be someone who can receive that kind of statement of faith, the kind of thing that Jonathan was saying to his armor bearer. Now in verse 2, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave, at Migron. So he's hiding like others are. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Again, we saw this number at the end of chapter 13, including verse 3, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And so the indication here is they had a priest. And he had an ephod and verse three, the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. And what is being implied is even though they had an ephod, which normally would enable them to discern God's will and hear God's voice, even though they had an ephod, they still didn't know that Jonathan had gone missing. And within the passes, verse four, by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. This was treacherous territory that Jonathan was heading into. And the contrast between him and his father is so blatantly clear. Here's Jonathan going into this tight space, rocky crags uh, with these ominous meaning names. And there's Saul in the cave of a pomegranate cave in Migron, hiding out, hanging out, not busy about God's work uh, for his life. Jonathan, though, was committed. And the fact that the journey was difficult didn't stop this man. So many of us, I think, we stop at the first sign of difficulty. Maybe come up with an idea, have a bit of passion. And then at the first moment where times are tough or things are difficult, we begin to give up on that passion. We begin to cash in on that vision. But Jonathan was a committed man. He was unlike Demas, who fell in love with the present world and departed for Thessalonica, abandoning the work of the ministry that he'd had with Paul. He was unlike 
Mark on his first missionary journey, who at a moment of difficulty, whatever it was, left Paul and Barnabas alone. He had a redemptive ending to his life and his story. However, he began uh, rather poorly. But Jonathan, oh, he was committed. He was in for a fight. Let's get our game face on. Let's fight. Let's understand that we are up against grand difficulty in this life. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, of course, in reply, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Now, to me personally, this is holy ground when it comes to God's word. All of it, of course, I know is holy ground. But when I get to this portion here where I see Jonathan and and his armor bearer conversing with one another about this potential fight, it just is always so encouraging to my own heart personally. First of all, notice Jonathan's perspective concerning these Philistines. He does not refer to them as Philistines. He refers to them as uncircumcised, which indicates that he realizes there is a spiritual nature to this entire battle. But the thing that I so love is that he says to his armor bearer that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. In other words, Jonathan was a man who with his faith did not underestimate God. He believed that God could do it. Just a radical man of faith. He knew the Lord. He knew God. He knew that God could win a victory with a large army or that God could win a victory with just a couple of willing bodies who put their own lives upon the line. There was great faith inside of Jonathan's heart. You know, in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul makes clear to us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, this is primarily speaking of salvific faith that justifies a person in the sight of God. However, it is clear that the more we hear the word of Christ, the stronger our faith can become. It is fuel for our faith. And perhaps Jonathan had in his musings upon the word of God, come across passages like Leviticus 26 verse 8 where he read that five would chase 500 and 100 would chase 10,000. Perhaps he read even in Deuteronomy 32 verse 30 more extreme extreme numbers that one would chase a thousand and two would chase 10,000. And he, perhaps in meditating upon those numbers, rolling them around within his mind, looked up at that Philistine garrison and thought to himself, listen, the two of us plus God could lead to great victory for the nation of Israel. If God is for us, he would think, who can be against us? Incredible faith from Jonathan. And I've always admired this kind of faith. Those moments in time where a person is able to say, listen, logic does not dictate 
that this would be successful unless, by logic, you mean that I insert the God of Israel into the equation. Once God is there, once God is seen, once God is present, there is nothing that he cannot do. Now, I also love this section because of the response of Jonathan's armor bearer. He says, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. What incredible support. Jonathan was a man of faith, but he also, as you look at the flow of his life, was a man with godly relationships, godly friendships, both this armor bearer, but most notably his friendship with David. He was attractive to godly people. He was attracted to godly people. And he had acquired this armor bearer who had come to a place of being able to say, listen, I can support you in this kind of way. So often people who want to serve the Lord, people who want to honor the Lord and be used by the Lord often make the mistake of surrounding themselves though with less than supportive people, less than godly faith filled people. And rather than receiving encouragement or positive exhortation, they receive discouragement and doubt because people without faith, without that trust in the Lord, that confidence in him, they will doubt, they will fear, they will panic in moments like these. Then Jonathan said in verse 8, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, now Jonathan proposes a little bit of a test to see whether or not this is from the Lord, you know, realizing, hey, you know, sometimes we as humans, we just come up with bad ideas. We blame them on the Lord at times. We say, well, the Lord told me to do this or the Lord told me to do that. But Jonathan says, well, maybe we should have a little test. If they say to us, verse nine, wait until we come to you. Then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. Now, the thing that's always been so curious to me about this statement from Jonathan is that it's not a highly supernatural kind of statement. You know, he doesn't say, if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we'll know that's not from the Lord. But if they say, you know, would you guys like to eat some watermelon cotton candy? And then they begin to float in the air. Then we will know that it's from the Lord. You know, some kind of ridiculous sign. This is all very natural. I mean, it's like a 50-50 proposition. Hey, wait, and we're going to come down to you or come on up here and we'll show you a thing or two. Hey, neither one is supernatural and both of them very possible. And so he just says, listen, this is how we will know. Again, just the faith of Jonathan. So both of them, verse 11, showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. They begin to mock the people of God. And the men of the garrison, verse 12, hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. 
And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. You know, that's the sign. That's the thing that we were waiting for. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within it, within, as it were, half a furrow's length in, a, in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Now, I just can't help but fall in love with the confidence of Jonathan. It wasn't self-confidence. It wasn't cockiness or arrogance. But it was confidence in the Lord, real belief in the Lord. I think so often as believers, we are, you know, very weak in our approach to the Lord at times. Uh, we tend to sing songs. I think if you listen to the lyrics of modern songs, so often we're praying and singing quite constantly and consistently for rescue. But the Lord wants to rescue us and enable us to be victorious. Uh, Jesus said concerning the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jonathan had a confidence in the Lord. And as they won this miraculous victory, the fear of God and the fear of the nation of Israel began to permeate the camp of the Philistines, not just because of this victory, but also because there was an earthquake that was attached, verse 15, to this victory. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude of the Philistines was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult and the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. So, you know, Saul hears this turmoil. He sees the scattering of the Philistines. He calls Ahijah to bring the ark to attempt to discern what is happening, what the Lord desires. But the tumult of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said, hey, withdraw your hand. Let's get out of here. Let's get ready for battle and let's go fight these Philistines. Now, verse 21, the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up to them, up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. You have to notice what Jonathan's faith ultimately produced in Israel. You had different Israelite warriors who had defected and gone to the Philistines. You had others who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim. And these men begin to come out of their hiding place 
to join the Israelites in battle. His faith did something. In the Philistines, it produced fear. And in the Israelites, it produced boldness. Sometimes our faith will bring out the best in those around us. People need a living example of faith to follow, to be encouraged by, to be stirred up by. And will you be that person? Will you be that person who, as people watch your faith, they are so encouraged to see your resolve, to see the way that you handle trials, to see the way that you handle cancer, to see the way that you handle perhaps betrayal, to see the way that you handle financial difficulty, to see the way that you handle the ministry and the work of the church, to see how you handle seasons of hardship with your children. As people watch your faith, they are encouraged in their own lives. And they begin to believe, well, I could do that as well. If they can handle their problem, their difficulty in the way that they are, well, by faith, I believe that I will be able to as well. And so all of these groups begin to rejoin Saul and the people of Israel. And the men of Israel, verse 24, had been hard pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Again, you see the prideful arrogance and stupidity of this man, Saul. He says, listen, I'm going to be avenged. It's not about you, Saul. Secondly, we notice that he puts this curse on everyone that they're not allowed to eat until the evening time. Now, verse 25, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth. For the people feared the oath. You know, they needed that honey. They needed some energy. but They feared that oath of Saul. But, but Jonathan, verse 27, had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. You know, he got the nutrients that he needed, the strength that he needed, some, some carbs, some sugar to get in his body to continue that pursuit in that battle. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats this food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. In other words, Jonathan knew that had the people of Israel been allowed to eat, been allowed to, to you know, have some carbs as they were fighting, they would have won a greater victory against the Philistines than they had because of this uh, foolish curse that Saul had instituted. Now, there are just such wonderful lessons that I think can be drawn out of this. First of all, the honey at times in scripture is a picture of the word of God. Psalm 19, speaking of the word of God in verse 10, that the word of God is sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And you see Jonathan here, he eats the honey and his eyes are brightened. He is strengthened. 
you know, the Word of God. As we're cruising along in life and in these battles and wars that we find ourselves in, the Word of God can brighten our countenance, can strengthen us, give us the spiritual nutrients that we need for the fight. But notice also how Jonathan understands that if the people had been able to eat, he said, how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? You know, the, the truth of the matter that I've discovered over time is that legalism so often kills joy and slows progress for God's people. You know, the battle that we're fighting as the church is hard enough by itself. But sometimes we add these restrictions that are not biblical. And people say ridiculous things like, well, what's the harm in it? What's the harm in making it a little stricter or more stringent? It's good. It will provide safety for us or, or things like that. But the reality is, is that for so many, this life is hard enough as it is. To take away a few little creature comforts and things like that, well, sometimes it's just unnecessary and it can actually rob a person of their joy and can slow progress because it becomes the definition for non-believers of what it means to become a believer. And to hold out some obscure or personal pet peeve kind of restriction and to say, well, I don't think a believer should ever do these things. It might not be in the Bible, but I don't think you ever should. To have that kind of restriction will only keep someone from Christ, not cause them to turn to Christ. They struck down, verse 31, the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ijalon, and the people were very faint. And the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Now this was biblically forbidden. They were not to eat the animal with the blood. But this unfortunate legalism had driven them to sin. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So Saul creates this way for people to be satisfied with food, yet not defile themselves by eating the blood. The editorial note is that it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And you know, as you read the Old Testament, what you discover is that spiritually sensitive Israelite leaders built altars as a matter of routine, not Saul. This was his first time building an altar to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man after them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest, he objected. He said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul, verse 37, inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. 
For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. So Saul knew that something was wrong. He'd consulted with the Lord. He heard no answer. So he believed that someone had violated that vow that he had forced upon the people. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in my son Jonathan, O Lord God of Israel, give the Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And again, I've taught you uh, about the Urim and the Thummim. These were, although we don't know the specific details, the way that they would consult the Lord for yes and no answers. And Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. You can almost hear the sarcasm dripping from Jonathan's voice. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. <laughs> Saul was willing to go through with this vow. Then the people said to Saul, verse 45, Shall Jonathan die? who has worked this great salvation in Israel far from it as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. They, they interceded for Jonathan and saved his life. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. So that's the story of Jonathan sparking the faith and rallying the people of Israel. Now in verse 47, we have a little editorial note to close the chapter. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. So we have a list of different enemies of Israel. And, verse 48, he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel, Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. So, of special mention are the Amalekites, whom Saul fought valiantly against. And we're going to see the Amalekites repeated or come onto the scene again in chapter 15. Now, the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. So Abner was Saul's uncle, and this is really all he had as far as official members of his kingdom and leadership, just the commander of his army. Kish was the father of Saul. And Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines, verse 52, all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. This is how Saul grew his army. He would find strong men or valiant men and he would recruit them 
into his army, which helps us explain why he was so attracted to David when he arose onto the scene. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.